All right, if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, there are sermon notes available in the back. Um, if you like one, there's one that says junior on it and one for the uh, adults. So if you don't have one of those and would like one, feel free to grab one. And Ephesians chapter 1, the title of today's message is The Sum of All Things. The Sum of All Things. And what we uh, want to look at today is the preeminence of Christ. So if there's something right up front that I can give you uh, that we're going to end up really, really digging into is Christ being the sum of all things. And when we talked last week about um, all the things that, that go into the, being the, the chosen of him and God choosing those whom he will save, we were able to see that he chooses them in Christ um, and that Christ does the redemptive work and that Christ is the one um, who does the things that, that are necessary uh, to be redeemed. And this week, we're going to dig a little bit more into the glimpse that God gives us into the mystery of his will. Um, and we're going to see that it culminates in Christ, which is wildly important for us today. We have to understand as believers that Christ is the center of all that we are all that we believe. In fact, as we're going to learn today, he is not only all that we believe, but he is the center of all of creation. He is the sum of all things as the preeminent Christ. Uh, so we will dig into this together. I'm very excited for this because truly when we when we get our minds through, through the work of the Spirit in us, when we get in our minds the preeminent state of Christ for the believer, uh, we really do have a, a more calm, understanding, a calm demeanor, the fruit of the Spirit is born out in our lives. Uh, the preeminence of Christ is central uh, to the life of a believer. So let's first stand, if we would, Ephesians chapter 1. I know everybody's gotten comfortable now. I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So we're going to start with verses 7 through 10. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this morning and continue through this magnificent book uh, that proclaims the sovereignty of Christ, the centrality of Christ, the gospel that you would, would change us. We just thank you for the opportunity to, to look to you and, and to praise you all by your grace. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you have your sermon notes, it's also on the screen there, but you can fill in the, the section for the theme of the book. I'm going to try to have the theme of the book of Ephesians uh, available to you every week so we'll become familiar during all the time that we're studying through it. The, the theme is the glory of God seen in making man new creatures in Christ. New creatures in Christ. The indicative of what Christ did and the imperative that we follow through his work in us by his spirit. So the theme of Ephesians is there for you to, to take those notes and to begin there. But in our text today, 
I want to start in verse 7. So point number one today is God's grace. And then you'll notice in your sermon notes, if you were here last week, it's a little bit different. I felt it was a little too busy last week, so I wanted you guys to be able to take more of your own notes um, as opposed to lots of places that I thought you should look at. So I wanted you to be able to follow along and take those notes yourself. So that's why it may look a little dip, different this week. So just bear with me while we figure out the best process for that. But point number one, God's grace. In verse 7, in Ephesians chapter 1, it reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. So when we come into a new passage like this, and it says in him, obviously a pronoun, and many of us likely have it capitalized in our Bibles where it says him with a capital H, but just to make sure we're all on the same page of how to dig into a text, we have to know who the him is, don't we? We have to know in him. And so if you look back in verse 6 that we talked about last week, um, it says about the beloved. Okay, that doesn't tell us who it is. You take a step back again into verse 5. Ah, there it is. Through Jesus Christ to himself. So we know that the in him of verse 7 is Christ himself. So in him we have redemption through his blood. So in the context here, Christ's blood is where our redemption is earned. Christ's blood is where our redemption is found. And it's the shedding of his blood that provided the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. And so when we think about the perfect Lamb of God, I'm, I'm sure many of us have heard Lamb of God uh, as a description for Christ. But why that is so important is to think about what the Old Testament laid out for us as far as the requirements for the transgressions or the breaking of God's law. We have to understand that the blood had to be paid for sin, and there's several different things that goes along with that. So the first thing is the foreshadow of the type of Christ in, number one, the sacrificial system. That's probably the number one location in the Old Testament that we can think of what is the picture that we can understand Christ's sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, we know uh, that God laid out his law with a sacrificial system. And he laid out in such a way that there had to be blood shed to atone for the breaking of God's law. And that included uh, different animals in different ways, depending on the sin or the time of year or the festival that it may be. And there's lots of different things, too much to go into in detail. But the main sacrifice for the atonement of sins had to be a perfect, perfect animal. There could be no defect. There could no, be no uh, issues with it physically, um, no issues with it mentally, if you could say that. They had, they had to have a good, functioning, perfect, by all rights and accounts, a blemish-free animal. Now, the point of that is the fact that it takes perfection to atone for imperfection. And then this perfection was then marched to an altar in a tabernacle or later on the temple, and it was ceremonially killed. And its blood was spilled on the altar for the atonement of the sins of the individual who placed their hands on the head of that animal. And so very early on in Scripture, we learn that transgressions of God's law have to be atoned for with blood. So it's very important to Paul that we understand that uh, because that's what he is referencing in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In fact, we can see a hint of this even before the sacrificial system was laid down. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, 
You can turn there if you'd like, but it'll just take a moment to read it. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 reads, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now you might be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Well, in reality, if you think about what just happened when this occurred, Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of humankind into sin. It's Adam bringing death and sin into the world by breaking the clear command of God, which was do not eat from this fruit. And God, in his grace, instead of killing him on the spot, allowed him to live for almost 900 years. And the very first thing that he does is cover their nakedness. Nakedness, nakedness. I always get made fun of for saying naked. So it's nakedness, okay? nakedness in the sight of God. And what that is a symbol of, what that's a sign of, is their sin. And so they recognize that they are naked before God, and they understand their sin. And so God, in his grace, sheds the blood of animals that had never had to happen before. There was no death before this. No animals had died. No one had had perished. Nothing had passed away. And so God takes the life of animals to cover humans' sin in the very beginning by his grace. Now, the reason I'm so emphatic on this and the reason why I'm driving this home so, so much is that we have to recognize the seriousness of our sin before a holy God. Blood has to be paid for sin. Our transgressions, as Paul calls them, is an affront to God. It causes his wrath to be stirred up. We need a savior because of this. We cannot understand the need that we have for a savior if we don't understand the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. We have to understand what those things are and how they affect God's holiness. In fact, I think the greatest sign of how serious God takes sin is the cross of Calvary. That is the greatest sign in all of history, the greatest symbol to us as human beings that sin is serious before God and the fact that he placed his son on a cross and poured out his wrath upon him for the sins of all of us, of those who would believe. That is how serious God takes sin. Because truly the cross is a display of love. It is because of the love that he he bestows on those whom he's chosen to save. But it is much more a picture of his justice. It is much more a picture of his wrath. If we overemphasize the love of the cross and do not recognize the justice and wrath of God against sin on the cross, we have missed the picture. God takes sin very, very serious. But grace. And just like Paul, he's so good at displaying the need for forgiveness for our transgressions. And then he says, according to the riches of his grace. And he contrasts the transgressions versus the grace. So we get to live in the grace as his children the grace that he pours out. And now here it says riches of his grace. The word in the original language is abound. It can be uh, summed up as abound or mean abound, abounding. And so when we think about his grace abounding, think of a 
container of fluid. So I'm going to use this as kind of an illustration. Think about this for just a minute. If we think of a container of fluid, if it has a, an abundance of something put into it, let's say a cup of coffee. Everybody enjoy their coffee this morning? Yep, I know I did. All right, so coffee in the cup, right? And you keep pouring and you're not paying attention. Anybody ever done this before? Overfill it and it abounds out of your cup and then it spills everywhere, right? So when we think of an abounding, it's so much that the container that it's being put into can no longer contain it. The, the barns or the, the silos of the old, that culture would, would be said to be abounding if they could no longer hold the harvest. So the harvest is abounding if it can no longer be contained. So get that picture of abound in your mind. That's the grace that God has for us. Did you know, though, the opposite of his grace is his wrath, as we've, as we've mentioned already? And did you know that scripture in every location about God's anger or his wrath, in nearly every location, talks about it being stirred up, a building up of God's wrath? Do you know that God's wrath doesn't abound against us, thankfully? That he has to stir himself up to wrath because of the offense against his holiness. The, the contrast in the Old Testament is that he abounds in loving kindness, faithfulness, love, grace, and he has to stir himself up to wrath. God is not impassioned. He's impassable. So it's the idea of not being driven by passions or not being driven by emotions. So God is not reactive. How many in here have ever lost your temper? Yep, I think everyone has. God does not lose his temper. Think about that. God does not lose his temper. His wrath and his anger is a just, patient, long-suffering wrath that must be stirred up when his holiness has been offended. So if you think about stirring a cup of coffee, so I'm going to go back to coffee again, all right? You put your creamer in, you're stirring it. If you stir it and stir it and stir it, what happens? Eventually, it stirs up over the rim to impact the outside cup. So think about that against grace, abounding in grace. So when we there's an overabundance, it freely flows out and it comes over the edge. But God, on his cup of wrath, has to stir it so that it then pours out on the intended person. That is the contrast between the abounding graciousness of God and his wrath that has to be stirred up. So please don't hear that God's wrath is any less important than his grace, because it is. But what I am saying is God, in his graciousness, stirs himself to wrath, does not abound in wrath. God abounds in grace. Does that make sense? Everybody on the same page with that? Because the grace of God is a beautiful thing, and his long-suffering and patience is seen over and over and over again in the fact that he has to stir himself to wrath, because none of us before conversion should have even been allowed to, to breathe a breath of air with the fact that we were born in sin. And so thankfully, God's wrath must be stirred up, but God's grace abounds and pours out on us. How beautiful is that? It's an amazing picture. So how that applies to us is the point that the sacrifice was the shedding of blood. So God takes sin serious, and we must take sin serious in our own lives. The grace of God is there and has paid for our sins. So we can know in confidence that the sin that we are going to make, because I can guarantee all of us are going to sin tomorrow. The sins that we make tomorrow that we commit against God has already been atoned for. 
so we can rest in that grace. But that does not excuse us from allowing sin to abound, as Paul talks about. We have to understand that God still takes sin just as serious after conversion as he does before conversion. He takes sin just as serious after Christ's death as he does before Christ's death. So God, being completely unchangeable, do you think he changes his view of sin from before Christ's death to after Christ's death? No, of course not. If he takes it so serious as to send his son to atone for it, the sin in our lives is taken just as seriously. So lest we think that grace allows us to live however we'd like, we have to understand that our transgressions are still serious before a holy God and strive to glorify him. The point of our life after conversion is to glorify God in all that we do. It's not to earn our relationship with him. It's to glorify him in thankfulness for the grace that he's given us. So live your life in such a way that we can glorify God in what we do. Point number two, God's cause. God's cause. Verse eight. So we're going to move on to verse eight for God's cause. It says, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. This particular verse, and, and breaking it down this week and studying it, I had never dug into this verse. It's, it's fairly short. It's in the middle of a thought process for Paul. There's, there's no period. There's no really, there's no, um, uh, why can I not think of, my goodness. Okay, there's, no, there's nothing there that would indicate it's supposed to be separated out. Um, there's nothing in there. It's just a flow of thought. He's in the middle of a thought. And so you're just reading the sentence. Paul's known for his exceptionally long sentences in Greek. I think he had one Greek sentence that was 253 words or something crazy. So he just he just gets in these thoughts and keeps going. And so it's really easy to get past this. But as I was digging in here to the original language, punctuation, there's the word. It was punctuation. There's no punctuation here. Okay? Did you see how that? Man. So punctuation in verse 8, there's no punctuation in verse 8, so he's in the middle of a thought. So it's really easy for us to just read it and keep going. But there is so much here, especially when we understand what the original language means with the, the two words wisdom and insight. So which he caused to abound us to us in all wisdom and insight. First, he causes, he is the cause of all things. So we are still talking about Christ which he caused to abound in us. So Christ is the cause of everything we've talked about so far. He is the cause. He is the activator. He is the one causing this to impact us. And the application is through his spirit. So Christ is the cause for all of these things. Now, when we think about the cause here, we have to understand that the cause to abound is the idea of changing or making a modification to what is occurring. So which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. Now, what Paul is referencing here is God's wisdom and insight. God's wisdom and insight. But what we also have to understand is that we have wisdom and insight that has been tainted by sin. And so the cause to abound in all wisdom and insight is God changing our wisdom and changing our understanding. The original word in the uh, Greek, therefore, insight is understanding. So wisdom and understanding. In Proverbs 9.10, you can write that down if you'd like. Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's those two words again. So our knowledge of God, the fear of God is our wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So think about that for just a moment. Christ, we know from verse 7, has redeemed us from our transgressions by the shedding of his blood. But he also causes to abound in us wisdom and insight or understanding. So what that means is that Christ fixes our fear of God. Correct? We know from Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So he fixes our fear from a fear of punishment to a filial fear. F-I-L-I-A-L. Kind of a weird word, but filial fear. And that is a reverential fear or a fear of awe. So instead of looking at God as a mighty being that is just waiting to strike those whom he despises, it changes our wisdom to understand that God is in fact holy, that he is so far above us that we can't understand even his His transcendence. We can't even comprehend or begin to comprehend without his work in us. So he literally changes our thought processes alongside taking away our sins. Think about those two different things. He takes our sins from us, gives us his righteousness, but he fixes our wisdom and understanding so that we can even understand who he is and why we need him. Isn't that the beginning of the salvation process is when we are regenerated by the Spirit and we understand our position before God? So Paul is adding so much more here with this small sentence that I had ever seen before. What an impact. What what a thought that God would change our understanding and wisdom to understand Him. That is an amazing change. We are no longer... And it's a gradual change, so please understand the moment it's salvation, all we're guaranteed is that we understand we're sinful and he's holy, right? And that we, we can put our faith in God. But from there, the Spirit works in us to gradually change our wisdom and understanding so that we can, by pro- progress and renewal, have a better understanding of who he is. Isn't that the rest of the Christian life? Understanding God better, knowing more about him, fearing him correctly, Instead of fearing the idea that God's going to beat us over the head because we sinned again, we have a better understanding and wisdom that we are sanctified, redeemed, and co-heirs with Christ. How beautiful is that? That God fixes our fear, or excuse me, our wisdom and understanding. Because there is bad fear and good fear in Scripture. Whenever... You, you see people speaking to angels, and there's all kinds of different places that you'll see. Sometimes you'll see, fear not. But then you see other times of prophets saying, fear God. Why, why would it say fear not and fear God? What, fear not, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's, there's two different words, there's two different meanings for fear. So this idea of fearing God correctly is extremely and vitally important in the life of a believer because if you only fear punishment, what is your motivation for doing what's right? To not get punished. If you fear because God's your heavenly father and you have a fear, an awe, a reverence for him, what's your motivation then? To bring glory to God. 
So the kind of fear that you have is vitally important as a believer so that your motivation for living out the change that Christ has made in you becomes clear and becomes glorifying to God. Spiris uh, Zodhiots, sorry, I can't pronounce his name very well. Uh, I only know about him because he's a Greek scholar, a very well-known Greek scholar, but he has one of the best <coughs> definitions of the wisdom of God. It says, wisdom, the wisdom of God, is not something that is acquired by man, but something that is bestowed by God upon his elect. It is a divine endowment and not a human acquisition. The wisdom of God that he gifts us, that he changes in us according to the bounding graces and the redemption of Christ is his gift to us. The application here, I think, should be something that all of us can wrap our, our minds and our hearts around. Fear God correctly. Fear God correctly. Don't get caught up in the idea that God's waiting to smash us with a hammer after justification because we messed up again. Fear God that he's a holy God. Fear him because of what he's done in Christ. Fear him because we have the opportunity to stand before him because of his own work in us. Think of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah stood before God and goes, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. He's fearful because of God's holiness and God purifies him by touching his lips. It's the same idea. If we understand and fear God with the correct fear, the correct fear, our motivation is to glorify a holy God, not fear punishment. Because the punishment for our sins was poured out already. The wrath of God for what we have done to break God's law was already put on Christ centuries ago. So fear him because of his grace, not because of his punishment. Because your punishment's been paid already. And that changes how we live our lives when that starts seeping into our mind. All right, next point, God's mystery. God's mystery. Verse number nine reads, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. So we're still in the same thought. There's no punctuation. I got the word the first time that time. There's no punctuation in verse nine making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. This idea of mystery has been used by Paul in several different ways, and I want to really separate out the meanings here. He's talked about the mystery of salvation, where the Gentiles are saved by Christ and the Jews are saved by Christ, and Paul uses mystery in several different ways. The mystery that he's talking about here is not a mystery like we have to go out and solve it. This is not a mystery like Sherlock Holmes, okay? This is a mystery that is a complete confoundment of human knowledge, the mystery of God's will. Did you know that it were it not for God's work in us through the Spirit, we could not understand God's will? He is too far above us. So the mystery of God's will is this, and this passage is this idea that God is so far above human understanding. He's so transcendent outside of time and space. He's so big and holy and vast that we could not even understand him were it not for his condescension to us. So this idea of the mystery of his will 
is the idea that Paul was trying to get across that it is such a mystery. It's, such, it's something so confusing and confounding that we can't go out and figure it out. It is something that God has to reveal to us by what in verse 8? Fixing our wisdom and understanding. Do you see how he's building his thoughts, building his processes? God redeemed us with his blood in verse 7, the blood of Christ, who then fixes our wisdom and understanding so that we understand that. And then he reveals to us the mystery because he fixed our wisdom and understanding. And so now that we, as, as people that have been recipients of his grace, now can begin to understand a glimpse, a, a, a sliver of a glimpse into God. And the first thing he tells us as he starts talking about the mystery of God's will is according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. And that's in verse 9. The second half of verse 9, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. So lest we let our minds trail and go, well, why in the world would God do this? Why are things like this? Paul stops and goes, nope, it's according to his good pleasure. It's according to the glory of God, to his pleasure. It's because that's what he chose to do. This is the second time we've had this in the last two weeks. Last week we had the pleasure of his goodwill in our salvation. Now we have the pleasure of, good, his, of his goodwill excuse me, in fixing our wisdom and understanding and revealing the mystery of who he is to us. God takes pleasure, hear me on this, God takes pleasure in redeeming the pinnacle of his creation back to himself in every aspect, in every facet, and in every way. The pleasure of his goodwill is that he brings it, brings us back to himself. And the idea of this mystery, I want to I drive home just the, the, the immensity of this idea of mystery. For centuries, the human race thought that what they could see with their eyes is all that there was. Right? We can see our skin, we can see trees, grass, whatever the case may be. There was a mystery about how things functioned beyond that level, right? And there's, you'll look throughout history and you'll see all kinds of ideas and worshiping different things and all the things that go along with trying to figure those things out. And then suddenly someone, by the grace of God, invented the microscope. And now we, as human beings, are able to see to the microscopic level of makeup of the things of this world and better understand how God keeps it together in a natural order, how creation in its natural order works. So beforehand, was, it, was there ever a way before microscopic, the, the, the invention of the microscope, was there ever a way for a human to know an atom existed? No, it's a mystery. It's beyond all comprehension. We had no idea, right? And then God allowed the microscope to be invented, and suddenly the mystery is not so big of a mystery anymore. That's the, the idea of God revealing himself, the mystery of his will to us. is completely beyond our comprehension until he gives us a microscope, if you will, into his will. And in this case, we have just a tiny sliver of a glimpse. But I, I really want to understand the, the change that God makes in our wisdom and understanding to be able to realize and, and appreciate and glorify him correctly as he reveals his will to us. And all of this, and I mentioned this at the beginning, all of this is because of Christ. Are you guys getting a theme through today? Christ, the preeminence of Christ, that he is above all, in all, through all. The preeminence of Christ 
is seen throughout. And I want you to rest on the thought that you, believer, this is the application, rest in the thought that you, by grace, have the privilege of seeing into the mystery, the mysterious will of a holy, transcendent God. Think about that for just a second. As you comprehend the thoughts of how massive God is and you see his revelation of himself throughout the Old Testament, that we, by grace, have the privilege of a microscopic understanding of that, and it still blows our minds, does it not? When you think about grace, when you think about what you've done, when you think about all the things that this world, uh, about all, just, how, just how bad we are in sin, but God stepped in. When God reveals that mystery, and you just your mind just goes ahead and explodes. Just why, God? Why did I get to breathe again today? I messed up three times today, and the same thing that I've done for the last six months. Why am I still allowed to live? Just take me home and get it over with, so that you can glorify yourself with someone else. Has anyone ever struggled with that besides me? And that mystery that we have a glimpse into should make us go, okay. Okay, God promised this. Okay, grace is real. Okay, I, I get it. Christ did this. Okay, I can rest in that. God's faithfulness never changes. Okay, God, you can take me through this. God, you can get me through this. That is a beautiful way to look at the mystery of God's will. It's simple security for a troubled mind who still deals with sin. Last point this morning, God's kingdom. God's kingdom, verse 10. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 1 reads, For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him. So Paul is wrapping up his thought. We have a punctuation at the end of this verse. So he's bringing everything back to something very specific. But what he does here is talk about for an administration of the fullness of the times. What a strange phrase. Anybody ever struggle with that phrase? Administration of the fullness of the times. Well, when you begin to dig into the terminology biblically about this idea, what it's speaking of is the kingdom of God. The fullness of the times. So the idea of a fullness of times in Scripture is when God culminates the fullness of time by bringing in a new heaven and a new earth, by establishing his kingdom permanently, by Christ returning and rescuing those, are his, those who are his, judging and putting off those who are not in eternal punishment, and establishing what will be there for the entire rest of eternity. That's the fullness of time. So it's eschatological language. It's a big word for meaning the study of end times. So it's, it's the idea of end times, the, the study of last things. And so Paul brings this culmination of the mystery of God's will, and he says that the administration that in him, he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. So everything he's talked about up to this per point is purposed in Christ to bring about his kingdom to sum up all things in Christ, both heaven on things on he in heaven and things on earth in him. How many times have we heard in him now this morning? 
the kingdom of God was not only will not only be established by Christ, but did you know that we are already living in the initiation of the kingdom of Christ? When Christ walked this earth, he established his kingdom. He initiated his kingdom on this earth. It's the idea of already and not yet, which is, again, very hard for us to understand, but that's why God fixes our wisdom and understanding. See how Paul makes this argument, and then he comes into something that we can't even comprehend without the help of the Spirit? So we're here thinking about the already not yet of God's kingdom, and there's many passages I can give you. I'm going to give you a couple to write down, and I'm going to read one. Write down Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 which is a prophecy about the kingdom of God, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. I think actually I'll read two of them. So then Matthew 4, 17, you don't have to turn there. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's all throughout the Gospels. Every time Christ, Christ preached to crowds, there was idea of the establishment of the kingdom, especially in Matthew. And then the last one I want you to turn to, Acts chapter 2. Verses 29 through 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36. So I'm going to read a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones that sets this passage up, and then we're going to read the passage in Acts together. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you're not familiar with him, was an early 20th century uh, preacher in England, one of the most intelligent men I've ever read about. Um, he was a medical doctor in his degree at like 22, with being a doctor, got called into to, to ministry. Fantastic theologian, amazing preacher. He has this to say about the kingdom of God. If we regard the kingdom of God as the rule and the reign of God, the kingdom was here when our Lord was here in person. It is present now wherever the Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged as Lord. But it is to come with a greater fullness when everybody and everything will have to acknowledge his lordship. So we can say that the kingdom has come, the kingdom is among us, and the kingdom is yet to come. What then is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? Surely it is this, the church is an expression of the kingdom, but it is not to be equated with it. So a church in the already not yet is the idea that the church is an expression of the kingdom, that it has already been initiated, but it is not the kingdom. So now that we have that in mind of the, the church's position in the kingdom currently, let's read Acts 2, 29 through 36. It reads, men, brothers. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend, excuse me, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right, my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The establishment of God's kingdom began when Christ was on this earth and established his church in this very chapter of Acts. That's where it began. And Christ is king with authority and power per Matthew 28. He was given, Matthew 28, 17, 16 or 17, was given all authority in both heaven and on earth. He is king and we are in his kingdom as members of his body. Now I want to take a couple minutes to dif differentiate a couple things here because sometimes our minds will go, great, let's take over the world. The church is here to make all the nations live under the, the, our rule and we are to be kings of everything. That's not the idea. We are here to represent our king as his body. We are in, we are, as, as Lloyd-Jones said, as, as the passage says, we, we are here to be representatives of the king. As the body of believers that are different from the world, that are not living as of the world, that are redeemed by Christ, we are not to be taking over the world. In Acts 2, who does it say takes over the world and gives the full kingdom to Christ? God does. Who places the enemies of Christ under his feet? God does. It doesn't say the church does. It says God does. So we as believers in Christ, as his body, are meant to gather weekly the assurance of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism. We are to gather weekly for singing of praise to our King. We are to gather weekly for the reading of the word. That's what we're commanded to do. Now, does that mean that we don't have an impact and, and bring good to those around us in our, in our world out there? Of course we do. We're believers in Christ. But we are not to take over the world in the mindset of a revolution or, or those types of things. Because there are some ideas of that in extreme nature that would have those ideas. We are, According to scripture, the kingdom is the church as a representative currently, the already, but the not yet is because Christ has not finished establishing his kingdom. And now that we've talked about how beautiful Christ is as the king, I want us to spend a little bit of time here at the end of the sermon and really drive home the idea that all things, summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, the preeminence of Christ, the, the, the absolute majesty of our king. It's hard for me to even form the words to describe him. The preeminence of Christ, he is higher than all heights. He is greater than all greats. He is the absolute alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. And we, hear this church, we are co-heirs with him because of his grace. Christ will redeem all things in him. All things were created in him, right? We know that from John 1. All things were created in him. And then man brought sin into the world. He redeems all things by his sacrifice. He sustains all things by his mighty hand. And he will judge all things at the end days, at the end of time. Bringing all things back under his power, putting his enemies under his footstool, the king of Christ 
The King Christ, excuse me, will reign above all things for all eternity. That is something you can hang your hat on. That is something you can take to the bank. That is the confidence that we as believers get to have when the entire world has no idea what the economy is doing, has no idea what this virus is doing, has no idea what they're going to, what the next war is going to be. There's rumors of wars. When all that is blowing up in people's face, we as believers in Christ, we as his redeemed, get to rest in the fact that our king has the final victory and he will grasp that victory. He is preeminent. He is above all. He is the king of all. In fact, Paul describes this later on in Ephesians 4, 6. He says that one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He is over all and through all and in all. There's no other version of all that you can throw in that. God is everything, and God reveals himself in everything as a second person of Christ, the second person of Trinity in Christ. Christ is the preeminent one of all. And when you think about that, when you think about the magnitude of Christ, think about the sacrifice that was made for our redemption. So we've circled back again to the gospel. Because that's what we as believers are centered on. We as believers are centered on the gospel. The, preeminent of, the preeminence of Christ, we know that he's going to be king. We know he's going to establish uh, himself for all eternity and make the world new. Heavens and earth, our world is tainted by sin. He is going to fix that. He redeemed not only us, but he is going to redeem creation when he finally comes and makes that new heaven and new earth. And all of those things, the preeminency of Christ, he lowered himself to a human level for us. He lowered himself from his throne where he was receiving praises for us. He lowered himself to where he would have a runny nose as a six-year-old kid running around playing for us. And then he lived a perfect life for us. He died a terrible death. The torture of that death is beyond our comprehension in our modern times. I truly believe that. I don't think that we as humans today can comprehend what that death was like. And yet he did that as the king of all the earth. He set that aside for a time to come down and live as a creature. The God of the universe did that for gracious, for, by gracious love for us. How beautiful is that? And then we get to rest in the fact that we will be with him in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. Think about this text and its flow. Thank God he redeems us. Thank God he fixes our wisdom and understanding. Thank God that he is going to establish his kingdom because we get to go out of this building back into a broken world that has not been fixed yet. And we get to rest in the fact that our king did that for us because there's no earthly king that I can think of in any time in history that would even consider doing that for one of their people in their kingdom, let alone all of the elect of God's kingdom. So let us rest in that because you and I, brother and sister, are children of the king. Hear that. We are children of the king. We are co-heirs with Christ. We will be reigning with him. The scriptures even say we will be judging the angels. He will give us a status by his own grace that will make us 
co-heirs and co-reigners with him for all eternity as we then take that status and redirect it back to God. And I could preach a whole nother sermon, so I better wrap it up. But we get to spend all of eternity praising God. Think about that. How beautiful that is. Let me pray. And then let's go out in the world this week and rest in Christ. Go out and rest. Go out and understand who you are, child of the King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to remind us today from this beautiful book that we are your children, that we are children of the King, that you have in your grace redeemed us from our transgressions. You have fixed our wisdom and understanding. You will fix the heavens and the earth that man tainted with their own sin, all by your grace. Help us remember your holiness, the reason for that sacrifice that was needed, and then the sacrifice that you made, that we might be reconciled to you. We glorify you, our King, in your holy name. Amen.